Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Backstage With, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with your favourite actors and creatives in the world of musical theatre. I'm Mikey Worrell. Today we're going backstage with Clive Carter, who's currently in Come From Away at the Phoenix Theatre in the West End. Come From Away is one of my favourite shows in town at the moment, and I was so excited to have a proper conversation with Clive about all the shows he's done over the years. We met up at the Phoenix Theatre on a really wet day. We were going to have a chat in his dressing room, but at that theatre they're all a little bit pokey, so instead we found our way to one of the bars. Here's our conversation. Clive Carter, welcome to the Backstage With podcast. More than happy to be here. We're here in the, the bar at the Phoenix Theatre at the Olivier Award winning Come From Away. Yes. Of which you are one of the Olivier Award nominated stars. Oh gosh, thank you very much, yes. So many people I know who've seen the show, including myself, say this is one of the best things they have ever seen. Yeah. You all seem to be having the most wonderful time up there. How is it to be part of this phenomenon? I have to say it's fantastic. It's one of the hardest things I've ever worked on, and I've been, in, I've been around the block a few times. Also, one of the most satisfying, because we're all playing real people. The rehearsal period for this was, the, that's what I mean by the hardest, the rehearsal period. It was, we only had a month to rehearse, and as you, you've seen the show, there's a lot of chairs, there's a lot of, uh, so there's a lot of movement. And the first thing we had to do was learn the script before we start rehearsals. Now, I hate doing that. For simple logistics of if you learn it, if you learn somebody's reply to you one way, there's no way they're going to say it. So you have to unlearn to learn it again with them. So I'm, I'm a, I hate it, but anyway, you had to. And I understood, I understood. And so the rehearsal period for this was uh, the best way to describe it would be like a steeplechase or steeplechase is that you came across each hurdle and it took time to get over that. And Chris, the director, wonderful director, he had a great way of just waiting till you could get over that hurdle. And so we, as each hurdle came up, we waited, got over, it took our time. And it's only when we got to the end of the race, as it were, you look back and you go, oh, now I understand what this was about. I remember the worst, worst, most difficult time was the, the first week we had music. The second week was doing a lot of study uh, and watching a lot of documentaries because the subject matter. And it's heartbreaking. I and mean, we saw stuff that hasn't been seen before. And we're all human and we broke down. And I remember one particular time when we were going through the script, I literally sobbed. I, I couldn't speak. I was in floods of tears. And there was no pressure. Just waited and waited, especially as I was the next one to speak. And they just waited and waited. And nobody said anything. And then when I got myself together, we then carried on. But it was important for us to go through that because our job as performers is to show you the story. How you react to the story is up to you. But for Clive Carter to be standing there, I mean, floods of tears, not the character you're playing, but Clive Carter, that becomes self-indulgent and it alienates an audience. And so that was one of the major hurdles we had to get over. And that was hard. That was really hard. But the nice thing was, as a company, we're very close. We bonded very quickly because we all rely on each other. And we do. So it doesn't matter whether you're 20, whether you're 85... Not that I'm 85, but um, you know what I mean. So the youngest, the oldest, it didn't matter. We were all in the same position. And I remember saying to Chris, 
I said to him one day, I said, honestly, you treat me like a 25-year-old. Thank you so much. <laughs> because it was true. We, did, we all get treated the same. And I loved that. And it did help to bond the company. And certainly by going to Ireland, which we did for two months before we came into the Phoenix, that really did cement that relationship between us all. And we do look out for each other on stage. Because if a chair's in the wrong place, if some little prop's not there, you know someone is going to be there to help you. It's so rare that a show gets the reaction that this is having so early in its run these these days. It doesn't feel like it happens much anymore. It's really nice to see that word of mouth can still make a show a hit. I know. I mean, they explained to us early on, because it was obviously on Broadway, they said, this is, this is a word of mouth show. I mean, okay, you take that, you think, well, why is it a word of mouth? Why can't it just... But it is a word of mouth show. And... The reaction we get at the end of the show is extraordinary. The audience, the only way to say it, they explode to their feet. They don't stand on them. They explode to their feet. And in all my years, I've never, ever seen that. I really haven't. I mean, even, even going back to when we first opened Les Mis, we got standing ovations at the barbecue when we first opened. But not like this, not with the explosion. I think also because this is quite an intimate theatre, which is lovely and perfect for this piece. And the... Just the warmth from the audience that comes over at the end, and it still amazes me. I still find myself standing there going, wow, even now. Do you think that is helped by the fact that during the show there are only, I think, three moments where there is actually time to clap before the end? Yeah, that tension, I mean, I, I felt it, you, you feel that tension around you as, as, as the show is coming to its ending. Uh, to be honest, I think the audience are very cleverly manipulated. And there's no other way. It is a formula. Yeah. The, the reason for that, though, is because it's very important that the audience go on that journey. We talk about the come from aways. Those are the people who don't come from Newfoundland. And the people on the, those Air 38 aeroplanes will come from aways. And you play your part as an audience. You are the come from away. So, in fact, you are those people on those aeroplanes. And you have the, the, the interesting thing is the reaction that the audience have is the same reaction that those people on the planes had. The fact that the language is difficult to understand and you don't know where you are to start with. And in fact, I, I say in the, very, in the first 10 minutes, you're only probably going to understand about half what we say. But what happens is you, you embrace that. So you then start to understand, ah, oh, you understand the language. So certainly by, the, you know exactly what's going on. And it is, it is guiding the audience through the, the passage of the five days. So you hopefully feel what they felt coming to terms. And the, just the, the, the whole experience of accepting, they didn't, they didn't care whether you're black, white, green, purple, what sexual orientation, they didn't give a damn. You're people and their job, they, what they feel, we're here to help. And the extraordinary thing is they still don't understand why People are so... The people from Newfoundland, they don't get it. They, they actually don't get it. They, don't, they say that's how we are. That's what we do. And they're still doing it today. You talk about the accent and, and the, the difficulty in understanding. Hmm. How, how do you maintain that throughout the show? And how, how long did it take once you were in the process to not get confused when you were switching characters? <laughs> and, and have there been any mishaps around switching? No, to be honest with you, no. I think because... The best way to say, how do we get through it? Being knacked. We have a wonderful voice coach, Joel, uh, who lives in California, who we still do classes with him, but um, because of modern technology, we do FaceTime, whatever whatever that, I don't know what it's called. But so I'll come into the theatre and I'll do an hour with him, five o'clock in the afternoon, it's eight o'clock in the morning, wherever he is, and we'll do, so we still do classes. 
And that's important. That's important because we're playing real people. We have to respect. It's all about respect for who you're playing. And certainly in this show. So, so there's no mishap. So we know which character we are. And because it's very definitely choreographed. That comes into the choreography as well. I mean, Kelly, the choreographer, who Kelly Devine, who won the Olivier for Best Choreographer for a show. And now what makes me laugh about that is I said to Kelly one day, I would love to know what you were drinking the night before you woke up and thought, I know, I'll get 12 actors who can't dance and I'll choreograph them to within an inch of their life. And it paid off. It's extraordinary. The fact that we aren't dancers and she's won the best choreo. And that's great. And that's, that's her determination. And the one thing about all the people who work the art side on, on the creative side are all so passionate about this piece. And it always flows down from the top. The producers, we've got the most wonderful producers who are always around, always there for you. If there's a talk on stage after, because sometimes we do after show talks, the producers are always there for you. They're always there sitting on hand and they care passionately about it. And you cannot help but care because of the subject matter. It's nothing frivolous. There's nothing frivolous in this show. The show is, is so tight. I mean, I've been three times and, I mean, you certainly, to the audience's eye, you never notice anything out of place. Everyone is seamlessly where they have to be at the right time. It's just, it's so wonderful to watch. Well, that's through, through hard work, hard crafting. Going back to rehearsal period, the re- as I say, the rehearsal period for this was the hardest, hardest rehearsal period. So difficult. But was it satisfying at the end of it? At the end, yes. During it, no. Because I remember when we first had to... These chairs, the chairs. When we, we got to a silly stage once during rehearsal where somebody went, there's a chair in the wrong place. There's a chair in the wrong place. What are we going to do? Don't touch the chair. Don't touch the chair. Don't touch it. We'll try and walk around it. We'll walk around it. Don't worry about it. It was like those lemmings. you know. Yeah, yeah. And it did really feel like that, I have to say. Or what was that film, Ants? I remember my daughter singing Ants, where they, there's a leaf in the wrong place. And that's what we were going through. There was a chair in the wrong place. We can't touch the chair. We don't know what to do with the chairs. Oh my goodness. Do you have any favourite moments to witness, either if you're on stage or from the wings at any particular point in the show? Is there anything that really sticks out to you as a, as a real pinnacle moment? I, I, I mean, I love watching it. That was the nice thing. I mean, we're on stage all the time anyway, but I love watching everybody else. And I think one of my silly, nonsensical favourite ones is where Mary goes, look up, do you see anything flying? I just love the way she does that. Just simple acting technique. I watch her and I think, you, must, you know exactly what you're doing. I love that. And the audience react as they should do. And, and that's, again, like manipulating the audience, you know, guiding them and showing them. And I, moments like that I love. One of my personal favourites of one of the things that I do is the Jewish chap. Mm. I think because they never found him again. You know, we, we've met all the people we play. We've met them. But that chap was never found. I found the information about him from the rabbi, the actual rabbi, who was, oh, amazing chap, amazing chap. And it's very much, you know, this story has to be told. And he told me about this old boy coming in to see him who'd held that secret all his life. He was about 85, 86, and he'd held it since he was eight years old and sent from Poland to Newfoundland. And no, he'd, he'd been told, don't tell anyone you're Jewish. Even his wife, even his wife didn't know he was Jewish. And he'd held that all his life. And then circumstances happened where there happened to be a rabbi, because they didn't have a rabbi in Newfoundland, happened to be there with what happened on 9-11. 
and he felt he could no longer keep it inside. He had to, he had to tell, he had to speak it. And the rabbi was there and there was an opportunity he couldn't miss. All those years, all those years he kept it secret. It must have been hell for him. It must have, and you just try and think the pain and the anguish he went through. And that's one character that I really, I'm not sure I enjoy playing him, but I enjoy being truthful to him, to be honest. So, so it's, that's, a re- it's a really beautiful sequence, and it almost that whole, that it, whole sequence yeah, it just yeah. stands out. I agree. The whole, the whole, in the yeah. chapel with all the different religions, oh, and, and the way the, the layering of the, of the music oh. and the different prayers is yes. just stunning. Yes, yeah. absolutely stunning. Can we go back to your very beginnings? Oh, what about 1840? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, you're a very difficult man to research, I should tell you that. Yeah. On <laughs> Online, there is there is a list of your credits, but there is nothing, like, it's very difficult to find dates of things unless you were in the original, uh, the very original cast. So was Les Mis your first job? Because that was the earliest thing I could find. Well, I don't, because I don't do FaceTime, I don't do Twitter, I don't do interviews, to be honest with you. I'm I feel a, privileged. No, no, don't, don't be. <laughs> but normally, I would, but this show is so you know it's important. So I tend to keep things under wraps. Under wraps. Okay. But no, my first, I, you have to go back to 1975, because my background is Shakespeare. All my early days, all I wanted to do was Shakespeare, Shaw, Bernard Shaw, and Shakespeare. That's what I did. Musicals, I fell into by purely by accident. In fact, the first, I'm trying to think, the first sort of musical I did, I think. I was doing a play. I wanted to do a play up in Leicester called If Winter Comes by a Czech writer called Janos Nidus. And it was a beautiful play and I really wanted to do it. And the director said, um, you can do it on condition you do Jesus in Godspell. I went, what? 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 He said, you have to play Jesus in Godspell. I said, I don't do me. I can't. Were you familiar with the piece, with Godspell? I, I knew of it, yes, of course. And I said, it, to be honest, it was one of those things in my early days, you had to do Godspell and Joseph and his mate. That was kind of conscription for young right. actors. You had to do it. Yeah. Everyone did it. Didn't matter whether you did Shakespeare, but those you had to do. And uh, she said to me, well, you're always singing. You're always singing. You don't stop singing, which I, I've always loved singing. I mean, I studied music as a child, not for any reason except I love music. So she said, well, you always sing, so you do it. I said, no, no, don't make me do that, because I can't do it in front of I, don't, I couldn't sing in front of I said, look, if you want to do that play, you have to do Jesus and Gospel in the main house. And I really wanted to do the play, so I agreed. Well, she opened the door because I thought, we, I did Jesus and Gospel, and I thought, oh, wow, this I like, this is fun. And so that's how it all kind of started, really. And being known for musicals in the West End was through the RSC which is, it sounds insane, but it was simply because of Blame Is that people thought, oh, big fan. In fact, before that, I did um, Phantom of the Opera. I was the very first role in Phantom of the Opera. We did it at Sippington. Well, because the, the lineup was Colm Wilkinson, who yes. was the original Jean Valjean, and Sarah Brightman, and myself. And in fact, Andrew wanted Colm and I to do it in the West End, but we'd already, we were always, with the RSC, and we were about to start this little project called Les Miserables. Oh, I didn't realise that Sidmonton Phantom before, happened before yeah, Les Mis. Yeah, because oh um, we were all ready to go with um, this little production, or this new show, which, and in fact, what the, it was part of the 1985 season of the RSC, and the original Phantom, which we did in Sidmonton, that was in 1985, and then we were about to then carry on with, with at the RSC, but Andrew said, oh, well, I'll pull you out, and we can go do it. 
But the ROC weren't having it. They said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. You're contracted, so end of story. Are you glad it happened that yes. way? Yes. Yes, I have to be honest. Because you got to do Phantom in town. In oh, yeah. Hand. I yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we started this little thing called Les Miserables, which was, as I say, just part of the 1985 season. If it worked, we would then transfer. If it didn't, we'd just carry on with the season. That would be the end. It was only supposed to play two months. That was it. And if it worked, then Cameron would take it to the West End. And in fact, it didn't, didn't work because we had the worst reviews the RSC have ever had. I mean, they were really bad, really bad. And uh, we just assumed it wasn't going to happen. I remember we had a private function with Prince Charles and, and uh, Princess Di at that point. And they came and Cameron was supposed to come along and say, we're not transferring, so you just carry on with the season, and which is what we expected. And then Cameron turned up and said, no, I'm transferring it. We went, what? And you probably know that story. Do you know that story? I didn't know that story. Well, because I, I knew about the queues around the block, but I don't. I didn't know chronologically when that fitted in. Well, what happened was that Cameron had decided not to transfer it, and that's what he was coming to tell us that evening. But he thought, I'll just check with the box office at the Barbican, and he phoned up the box office, and this guy at the box office, who we still don't know who he was, he said, um, "You're lucky you got through." He said, "What do you mean?" He said, "We can't sell enough tickets." We can't sell enough tickets. Um, it's ridiculous. He said, we, we, need, more, we need more dates because we we're filling them. And that's what changed Cameron's mind. He thought, well, all right, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. And he thought he'd have to nurse it through to the um, Easter. And to be honest, we thought it's not even going to reach that far. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think because Les Mis was so intense, such intense work. Um, and it was longer at that oh, point, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. Well, it was. I think the first preview of Les Miserables. I think they were serving breakfast. It was like, <laughs> it was like five and a half hours long. It was ridiculous. The thing was, the year before they had done was it Nicholas Nickleby over two days. Yeah, and they were sort of thinking this, doing the same thing with Les Miserables, but then they decided to do it as a one. Show. The other thing with Les Miserables, of course, it was nothing like that had ever been done before. Was it an opera? Was it a play? Was it a musical? They couldn't quite work out. It didn't sit in any genre at that time. It was a completely new thing. What sort of conversations were you as, as a cast having at that point? Were you going, did, did, you, did you like the show? Did you know it was good? Or were you going, what on earth are people going to make of that's, it? That's a good question, actually, because I remember the first night, we were so punch drunk with it, that the first night my agent came to see it, and I said to him, what do you think? He said, what? I said, what, what do you think? He said, are you joking? I went, no, no, I have no idea. What, has he got legs? He went, it's the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen in my life. And if he'd have turned around and said, it's the biggest pile of twaddle I'd ever seen, I'd have believed him. And that's what we all felt because we were so, you have to remember that at the time we were rehearsing Five Floors Underground at the Barbican, which used to be the London home of the ROC. And we used to have a B12 jab every Monday morning. I mean, because it could be winter, summer outside, they could have dropped the bomb, we wouldn't have known. Because we were literally five floors under, and all we had was the neon lights, you know, and so eventually get, you, your head gets heavy. So we used to have these jabs. You used to line up, bend over, bang, B12 jab. Oh, I thought you were kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they used to give us. And uh, the process was, we had no script. All we had was Victor Hugo's book. So what we used to do, the actors used to turn up at whatever it was, 9.30 in the morning, and we'd tear a page out of Victor Hugo's book, and we'd break up into groups, and we'd improvise. And then after lunch, uh, Trevor Nunn-Jonkid, lovely Herbie Kretzner, Alan Bobby, Claude Michel, would all turn up, have a look and go, oh, we can use that, we can use that, we can use that. And that's how it builds up. 
Uh, and we did that for the first, uh, you improvised for about the first two weeks, two and a half weeks. That's amazing. So yeah, it's, uh, but um, would I have ever thought it was the phenomenal that became? No, not at all. What about the people you were in it with? Because so many of, of that original group have gone on to become these huge Indeed. musical theatre stars. Yeah. Did you have an inkling that that was in store for them? Like Patty, Francis Oh, Raphael. well, Patty was, I mean, Patty's extraordinary. Patty She'd already got her Tony for Evita at that point. Yeah, yeah, she? she was. And I remember standing in the wings when she'd sing the Fontaine song and it just brought tears to your eyes. And to be, and calm the prayer. The, the one of the... Calm's lovely. I mean, he's a, such a lovely chap. And he, he, during the prayer, when he, when he used to do the prayer, the, the company got very close. Because the way we worked, we got very, very close. And so if there was birth, marriages or deaths or anything like that, the company used to close up with each other. And, and, uh, mm. and I remember, especially during the prayer, was the hardest for anyone who'd had a whatever. Uh, and I remember we used to, used to hold hands. You'd suddenly see people holding hands because it was heartbreaking. And if you were going through personal pain, it was, you know, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask somebody. Because that piece was so moving. So moving. It was there. I mean, I don't know, because I But certainly then. I was very proud of that at the time. Again, one of the hardest things I'd worked on, longest period, a rehearsal period, and would never expect it to be what it is. How long did you stay once you transferred? Well, when we transferred, Roger, Alan, who was playing Javert, who was the original Javert, I think had already contracted to do some other things. So when we transferred, he was there for the while, and then I took over Javert. And they rewrote Stars for me, funny enough. Seriously? Yeah, they rewrote Stars, because it was too low. Because Roger's voice is a lower voice than mine. He's a bass baritone. Yeah. And, and so I said to Claude Michel, Chauvet, I said, can you, is there any way you can knock it out because it's too low so they rewrote it so it all changed they liked it so much in every other production after that oh my God. so it's still in your key it's still, still in my key yeah. that's amazing <laughs> they should credit you for that uh, they should do shouldn't they they should they yeah. absolutely should <laughs> we won't dwell on this but what do you think of the whole changing the production to bring in the new the touring production into town where do you stand on losing the revolve are you emotional about that or do yeah. you feel like change is good things have to move on uh, to be honest I'm so far away from them is now I mean, I, because there's a thing, you know, every year something happens at the anniversary. And I used to do them occasionally to start with, then I stopped. And then the last thing I ever did was the 21st anniversary. And I said, that was my, that was it. Because I have a life outside of Les Mis. And so Les Mis is in the background now. That's history for me. So I've got no, whatever. I don't really think about it. You know, that's the... To be absolutely blunt. No, no, of course, I understand. I understand it was a long time ago. Was it Into the Woods that was the next thing for you, or was there stuff in between? Oh, no, stuff in between. Because I, I know you did, like, a lot of Shakespeare's in the 90s. That's right, yeah. Um, but then you also managed to fit in Into the Woods and Phantom <laughs> as well, just, you know, just casually. Um, but I really want to ask you about Into the Woods, because okay. it's, it's one of my favourite shows. Oh, lovely. You got an Olivier nomination for that. Yes, I did, yeah. Is there something about this theatre with well, you and Olivier I'm, I've now decided that this is the only theatre I'm going to work in the future, because <laughs> whenever I work here, I get nominated. So that's fine, I'll stay here. I think that's a good policy. I think it's a very good policy. I was watching videos of you doing Hello Little Girl on YouTube really? this Are morning. They They're on YouTube. They're online. Are they really? Yeah, yeah, I don't know if... I, I couldn't work out if it was shot here or if it was on Wogan or something. Oh, yes, we did a Wogan. Yes, you're right, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's Agony and there's Hello Little Girl on YouTube. So I was enjoying really? that very much. <laughs> oh my God, the, if I see that. The wolf young... costume's amazing oh, though, but... to, for the time. 
the way it moved and it was actually quite what scary. happened is um, Richard uh, the Richard Jones was the director and Richard Hudson was the designer and Richard Hudson wanted everything mechanical he didn't want anything electric he wanted it all like Victorian mechanical and he wanted the same thing with the head and we had this wonderful chap who did prosthetics who made the head and they said okay you can decide what you want to do but it has to be mechanical so he and I had meetings and it was fantastic because I how the head worked was um, bicycle lead, you know, bicycle uh, brake leads. Uh, and I had them running down the costume with the costume, and each finger had a ring on it. It was attached to a wire, attached to the wire in, in the head. I didn't have enough fingers to do all that, so I then had rings on this part of the costume. It used to take forever to get the costume on. Um, and so, because the ears moved, I wanted to snarl, I wanted the tongue to come out, I wanted steam to come out of his ears. Yes. Um, and I got it all. I got, but I, I had to learn. It was like typing. And I'm sure if you look on that, you'll see my fingers doing this. Because I have each, to watch it back now. Each finger does that. And, that, and certainly with the, like, certainly when the steam came out, I remember the steam being here. I think it was. No, you used to have to pull this lead, which the steam would come out, which was actually athlete's foot powder. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have wanted to be right in front no, of that. It was athlete's foot powder. They used to put it because it's very, very fine. So you go. Tsh. Do you have any favourite memories of being in that show? Oh, lots. Lots of fun. I loved that show. I really enjoyed it. Again, it was a really nice company. Sadly, a few of them have gone now. Patsy Rowlands, I absolutely adored, and we, she was in the next dressing room. Lovely lady. I've got lots of lovely memories of that. We we had. I remember because everyone dies off. They used to have. We used to have little. I should be saying this, but like little drinking clubs in backstage. And when she died, you could go to Julie McKenzie's room because she'd have little drinks there so you could once, and once you're dead you had to be dead that was the agreement the other I think the other one was upstairs and that was soft drinks so you could go up there if you still hadn't died once you died you could then go to the bar downstairs. that's outstanding and we had also I remember the swings the covers they started an internal newspaper and then we could all contribute oh wow and it was wonderful we, every I think it was every month or every two weeks the, I think I've still got them somewhere. There would be articles just about the show, about people in the show, da 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 da, and you'd submit something. And I remember the chap who was covering me. I, I submitted something. He said, "That's rubbish. You can't put that." Well, hang on a minute. Wait, wait. You still can't put that. No, you can't put that. Standards. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't realise actually how short the run was. It was very short. What What happened? Did it just not? It was take? to do with the um, first war in a uh, in Iraq. Oh, right. Yeah, it was... What happened is when they announced that the war had happened, everyone thought that London would be attacked. And all the theatres went down. Not not dark, but they, but everyone... All the bookings went down. Not just theatres, all the restaurants. You could walk down the Strand and nobody was there for the first week, that first week. And because our producers were in Canada, we didn't have... But they weren't English producers, they were Canadian producers. And we'd been packed. And then all of a sudden, they get this... Thing saying it's dropped, it's dropped, it's dropping, and they panicked, and they always well, pick the notes up, which was ridiculous. They put the notes up. By the time they put the notes up, it had gone back up, up again. In fact, we talk about them walking, uh, queuing around the, the, the block they were, and but they couldn't. Once you put a notice up, you can't withdraw, you can't withdraw it. Right. And as soon as the notice went up, the theatre quite rightly had to get another show in. I remember they were getting Dancing at Lawnacy, which was a fantastic production, and that came in straight away after we finished. And I also remember Julie McKenzie giving a speech on the last night saying, this is ridiculous. Because the last night, they, they couldn't, they, in fact, 
people couldn't get in. People couldn't get in. For the last, whatever it was, two weeks, that, that was completely, well, it had been sold out anyway, but we used to get people queuing up around the block, they just didn't get in. It was sad, it was That's a mistake, a they knew it was a mistake, and unfortunately the producers knew it was a mistake, but there was nothing they could do. And that was the end of it. That is such a shame, because yeah. it's such a wonderful piece. It is a one, I agree with you. i tell you another interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. Stephen Sondheim, he's a, he's a lovely man, he's got a dry sense of humour, but he gives himself challenges. He, he uses numbers. For each production, he uses a number. For, uh, for our production, it was five. There are five magic beans. And musically, the way he scores it and writes it, there are five, to, there's, five there's five roads, there's five leads. I think um, one of my favourites, A Little Night Music, yeah. is seven. I asked him about that. He said, oh, it's the number seven for that. Nobody knows. And he said nobody needs to know. It's just a challenge for himself. He gives himself a challenge. Isn't that extraordinary? That is amazing. Extra- the man's a genius. I wish, I wish there was a book like Sondheim by Numbers and you could... Oh, I know. I, mean, I, I hope he does that. I absolutely love Sondheim's work. I, I love him as a person. He's a lovely man, but I'm absolutely passionate about his work, and I have nothing but admiration. When you think he wrote the lyrics to West Side Story, and he, this is what he told himself, that he thought he'd arrived. That was it. I'm a star. I, know I'm, I don't need to work anymore. And it was his mentor, which is Hammerstein, who said to him, actually, you haven't. You haven't. You haven't got anywhere. You've got one success under your belt. Well done. Congratulations. It means nothing. If you want to find out how actors work, the process of acting, you have to work with actors. And so Sondheim stopped. And he went to, I think it was Juliet's or something, and he studied with actors. And then he came back into it, and from then on, for me, he writes for actors. If you write, if, although again, I remember lovely Mark Tinkler, who was when again into the woods, he played the other prince. And Mark's background was opera. And because we had to work together so much. Um, and I remember, I was very nervous about him because I thought, oh, God, I'm going to be found out. Because don't forget, as a singer, I'm not a singer. The other thing I told I, you. I can't believe that. No, I really I'm, can't I'm believe that. I've never, between you and I, nobody's listening. Um, I've never had a singing lesson in my life. Well, you, you're doing really well at bluffing. <laughs> well, the, well, bluffing is the word. Um, in fact, Mary Hammond, who's a singing teacher, I said to her once, look, because people kept saying to me, who's your singing teacher? Who's your singing coach? And I was so embarrassed because it was like, um, I don't have one. And then I asked Mary Hammond, I said, do you think I should, do you think I should get singing lessons? Do you think I should? She went, no, don't. Whatever you're doing, it works. Don't mess about with it. Don't. So after that, I thought, well, it's okay then. I didn't feel so bad about it. Yeah, if it ain't broke. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> So, no, but I was just, just to say that about Mark Tinker, just that yes. um, because of his opera background, I thought, oh, this is it, I'm going to be found out, I'm going to be found out. But I didn't know that he knew my reputation as an actor. And so he was very nervous. And it took us a little while to like, mm-mm. Um, but in fact, we went to have a, have a drink and the ice was broken. We thought, oh, right, fine. But I remember we did an interview talking about Stephen. And the, the interviewer said, so does Stephen write for actors or for singers? And he said, he writes for singers. And I went, no, he writes for actors. Oh. <laughs> but uh, that's how clever Stephen is. For me, he works. And the classic moment of that, classic one, is Sending the Clowns. Yes. Is the classic, because he wrote that for Glynis Johns. Glynis Johns couldn't sing. And so he wrote it. So it isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground. You in midair. So he didn't hold the notes. And then Carol King brought it out as a single. And isn't it rich? Are we up there? Which sounds lovely, but meant nothing. And it got to number one, lovely, wonderful, but it meant nothing. If you get something like Dennis Johns or Judy Dench, Judy Dench. 
uh, and sings it as it was intended, my God, it rips your heart out. Completely. Rips your heart Completely. out. Completely. Oh, that was such a lovely little love letter to Sondheim. Oh, I absolutely Thank do. Thank you. Him. Absolutely do. Him. So, Into the Woods comes down. Yeah. The, was Phantom the next thing? Did Did you oh, put in a call? Gosh. That's really cool. No, the, I'm ready. No, Phantom, what happened with Phantom is they used to ask me every year, can you come and do it? Can you come and do it? Can you come and do it? And I couldn't because I was working. And I'd say, well, I can't do it. And then then what happened is Cameron eventually said, oh, can, can, you, can you please, can, you know, time to... So I, said, I thought I was too old for it, I'll be honest with you. And so I said, all right, all right. I said, well, look, let me, let me sing through it with Christy because I need to make, you know... So I went to sing it and they brought in, they didn't bring the lady who played, they brought in her cover. Now her cover was a young lady who quite frankly, um, I was old enough to be her father. And I'm standing there singing a love story, singing a love, and I said, um, I stopped it. I said, look, I'm really sorry. This has nothing to do with you, my love. It's nothing to do at all. But I just, this just feels wrong. I'm too old for this. I'm too old. So Cam, Cam thanks, but it's not going to work out. And then Cam said to me, no, 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 no. The lady who's doing it is much closer to your age, much closer. Can you can you just don't say no? Um, he arranged for a skirt for dinner, so I went out to dinner. It was with Jill Washington, and Jill was lovely. Jill was absolutely lovely, and um, I suddenly realised that it's okay, <sighs> it's okay. But I think at one point I think I was the oldest Jew in the business. Seriously, <laughs> I think I was. I think I was. I think I. Th- Yes, I was. I was when I eventually went in to do that. I was forty. Oh gosh! I was forty. Which for Raoul is top it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I used to, I used to look young for my age. <laughs> but um, and by your well, you, you should have come straight in then. You didn't. With well, you still look too late. Damn it! Sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was I was picturing it in my head. But um, um, but it was it was nice to go in and finally. Cross that box. As yeah, well. yeah, close that a bit. Yeah. Was there was there a conscious decision then to do more Shakespeare in the nineties, or was that just what that came was my your first way? passion? That was my always that my, my intention had always been Shaw and Shakespeare. I loved it, uh, and I was lucky enough to play all the Shakespeare I wanted to play. I mean, I did a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of Shaw, and I worked with. Um, I remember one particular director, Richard Digby Day, who specialises in Shaw. And it's wonderful with Shakespeare as well. Uh, and gosh, that was a learning curve. Gosh. And then quite the contrast, we will rock you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a contrast. Was that, was that a fun job? Did you just kind of take it for what it was and just... Because, I mean, the music, obviously, amazing. Oh, it, was, it, it was a fun job. It was great. It was... Um, what had happened is Brian was an old friend. Yeah. And he said to me, well, we're going to do this thing called Rock You. The thing that we rock you based on music. And I went, oh, great. He created this character called Kushagi. But at the time, I was doing Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, so I couldn't do it. And they had Alex, Alex Hansen, who's a wonderful performer. Alex is one of my top, yeah. you know, he's, he's the bee's knees. Wonderful. Oh, he's voice. a fantastic actor. Lovely guy, fantastic actor. But so Alex did it, first of all. Yes. And he's a hard act to follow. But uh, so then I went in, once I'd finished Cat, I could then go and do it. And Alex was only going to be there for a short while. So then I took it over and it was great fun. And working... With Shazza, um, Sharon D. Clark. Oh, excuse me, I've died and gone to heaven. There are certain people in this world, if somebody phones me up and says, we're going to do this show, and, you know, I say, who's in it? If, soon, if they say Sharon D. Clark, I don't care what it is, I'll do it. Don't care what part, don't care, I'll do it. She is just a phenomenal performer. 
a joy to perform with. She is so generous as an actress. But my God, she delivers. And that is a learning curve. You just look at somebody like that and you think, oh, have you got to lift your game to get to that stage? Oh, wonderful performer. Wonderful performer. Yeah, just electric. Oh, yeah. And she was phenomenal in Rocky. I never got to see her do it, sadly. I did see her do, do um, Caroline or Change. Did you? Yeah. I didn't get to see oh, that. Oh, I went to Hampstead to see that. She was but just... Now, the Olivier's, the performance she gave the Olivier's. I have never seen the Olivier's where the entire house stood up. The entire house at the Royal Albert Hall stood up when she finished. And by God, she deserved that. Yeah. And by God, she deserved the Olivier. Oh. <sighs> I mean, that was a tough category. It was. Yeah, it was a tough one to call. Amazing. I have to ask you about Wicked very quickly. Of course. When you became the wizard, yes. it really felt like that role was yours because yeah. everyone had seen it for the four or so years it had been going before that. And when you came in, there was just something so fresh about what you did with it. I loved it. I absolutely. I think when I was asked to go and do it, and I wanted to, didn't want to do whatever it was done, not because I wanted to be different, because I wanted to go back. Because you know it's based on the idea of the film or the book. Yes. But I wanted to go back to the film so that people could recognise this character. So I went, I went back to Frank Morgan, who played the Wizard in the film, the original film, The Wizard of Oz. And so I based it totally on him. I wanted to try and put him into Wicked. And Joel, the director, was fantastic. He said to me, he was very complimentary. He said we, we talked about it, and he said, "You do what you want to do. You do, and just do it." Just do it. And so he gave me carte blanche, which I'm so glad he did. And I loved it. I loved bringing Frank, Frank Morgan to, to, to Wicked. So that's what was There was such an eccentricity about it. Oh, because he was. Yeah. He was so eccentric. So, so well, that's what I wanted to bring. It was really it. fun to watch. And I have to say, one of the most enjoyable shows, working with Rachel. Rachel Tuckerton, who I love working with, and Louise Dean at that time. And we were very naughty and it was great fun. <laughs> I think the last question I want to ask you, I've, I've got so many more that we haven't got time to get to, but are there any shows of the past however many years that passed you by that you either didn't audition for or wish that you'd had the chance to do that you, you didn't do? That's a good question. I think I would love to have done a Sondheim, one that I, the um, Dima Bar of Fleet Street. I would have loved to have done that. And there's two, actually two things I've loved. Okay. For the Shakespeare's, I would love to play Macbeth. I played, I was in Macbeth twice, but I didn't play Macbeth. I, I wasn't old enough. I would love to play Macbeth, and I would love to play the Demon Bar of Fleet Street. Those are the two. Great choices. Thank you so much for your time. Thank I have you loved this. Honestly, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. Come From Away is currently booking at the Phoenix Theatre in the West End until September, but that could change at any moment. I say this every time I talk about this show, but I really cannot recommend it enough. The cast is so wonderful, I just want to talk to all of them. So keep an eye out for some more of them popping up on the podcast in the future. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to find out who's taking us backstage next, and we'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.